have you ever had have you ever heard of this no yes. is it who's heard of milk toast oh, yeah. a few of you okay have you ever tried it who's ever eaten it cereal <laughs> it's like the original cereal from the stone age this was like my dad's favorite snack i think he was like grew up you know they didn't have a whole lot of money and so this was like maybe comfort food but uh, I just kind of thought it was a funny little saying for what we're going into tonight. So I was talking to Brian last week, and I'm like, he's asking me if I'm ready. I'm like, well, yeah, no. I mean, I kind of got like a few slides put together, and I kind of have a general idea on what I want to talk about. But I'm like, it's really tough to come here and deliver a message to this group of guys. He's like, kind of laughed, and I was like, no, I'm serious. Like, I'm a little intimidated by this. And I've shared here a few times, but I'm like, you got to kind of bring up. Uh, pretty meaty message to this group of guys like they're expecting like some pretty solid stuff and i'm like mine's more like a milk toast message <laughs> so that's kind of why i jokingly put this verse up here in first corinthians you know where paul's talking to him and he's talking about them like maturing and so this isn't meant for you this is more meant for me that uh i gave you milk not solid food for you're not ready for it indeed you're still not ready so i don't know if i'm quite ready to deliver some solid food tonight so it might be more of a milk toast message <laughs> But I got, I, I think that it's some, some interesting stuff and I, I'm gonna try not to get too far down a rabbit trail because as I was looking into some of the stuff I wanted to talk about here tonight, um, I, I kind of started looking into like these messianic miracles, which we'll get into in a little bit, but I really started going down this rabbit trail and it got me so distracted that like Friday or yesterday, I think, or Thursday, I told Julia, I'm like, I think I need to start all over and start again. So I'm not gonna do that, but I'm hoping that it'll at least be clear tonight and have some understanding for you. So if it's just a bunch of jumbled up mess, like some milk toast, then I apologize early. So um, most of you that know me know I'm a bit cynical. And uh, Tara was kind of talking a little bit earlier tonight and she's like, ah, oh, just sometimes getting frustrated with the silliness of all the things going on. And I kind of laughed and like, so much of the craziness that I see happening around in the world today makes me cynical. And it makes me question people's motives and not really sure what's going on. And I've shared something, I think, with a few of you guys in the, in the past few weeks. The Lord's really been kind of like convicting me that um, you're, you're kind of being a jerk to people. You know, you've got this guard up since the whole pandemic stuff began. And I'm just more and more cynical of people. I'm less and less wanting to engage in like a friendly, heartwarming conversation about anything and uh it really came to it the other like a couple weeks ago we were at the park and there's this uh older couple i'm assuming grandparents that had brought a couple of kids over from the museum and we're over there with a the young man that we were watching for the afternoon and so we're playing and like these little girls they're probably like nine and ten they're getting ready to go and like jump on um the monkey bars and the grandparents are like oh no no you could get hurt and I'm thinking to myself, you're raising a bunch of sissies here. Like, come on, let the kids go up there and play in the monkey bars. They're not going to get hurt. Two feet off the ground, let them fall. And so I'm like running all this stuff through my mind, like kind of being a cynical jerk. But at no point did I once like engage in them in a conversation or like, hey, how's it going? Like, I just the whole time I'm just like running through this. Even I think to a point where I went over to Julia and I was you know, griping a little bit under my breath, like, I can't believe these people are not even letting their kids play in the monkey bars, you know? And so it, the Lord just really convicted me of it. And he's like, you know, gosh, you gotta have a little bit, maybe more compassion. So this is kind of where this message is coming from tonight. Um, a lot of it is just some stuff that I've been wrestling through. And I think what the Lord is kind of showing me, um, some of this is kind of some information that is nothing new. Um, again, it's not anything that's like some great super spiritual revelation or anything like that, but I hope it encourages us and just reminds us and we'll get to it full circle at the end of just really what God's called us to be. So anyways, 
Um, anybody that's ever heard me share, I'll give some loose um, facts and some information. I found out that it's really hard, like you hear all these statistics that people say and they're like, oh, Barna Group did this study and they showed all this information and like here's all these studies in the graphs, like to go and actually find any of that stuff in a graph is really difficult. So some of the stuff that I'm using um, is probably not the most accurate or trusted sources. I'm using them more for just an idea to kind of set the stage for what I want to get into talking about. So um, be like the Bereans. You know, we all know where Paul gives the admonition. You know, he says the people of Berea were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica. They listened eagerly to Paul's message. They searched the scriptures day after day to see if Paul and Silas were teaching the truth. So anything I say, you want to make sure you fact check it. So hopefully you know, you're doing a good job tonight on that. So um, with all that being said, um, I, some of the stuff that I see going on in our culture, again, nothing new. And a lot of the stuff that we see happening, I think I kind of have boiled down to or heard people talk about like this idea of kind of some major thinkers or philosophers of our day. And uh, not necessarily of our day, but in the last couple hundred years. And there are people that have kind of shaped some of the worldview and the mindset that we see that makes me cynical and makes me want to like less engage with a lot of people. And a lot of stuff that we gripe about here, the things that frustrate us, that kind of stuff, I think comes from some of these guys and their thought processes. So uh, first one, our fan, Charles Darwin. What a swell guy. I love the grum look on his face there in this picture. So it's like, uh, yeah, that wasn't... He's a random mutation from a monkey. Yeah, <laughs> just some pond scum. And yeah, just by happenstance, he showed up with that receding forehead. But, <laughs> but the guy, as goofy as the photo is, like he really changed a lot of thought process. Like if you think about just some kind of wacky scientist guy that went off on his own and started having these weird thoughts and stuff and spent maybe too much time with some birds, I don't know. But he, uh, he had a really big impact on like a lot of thinking and some of this philosophy and that comes on and um, there's another dude, another good buddy of ours, Karl Marx. Um, another crazy looking dude. If you know anything no about this guy, yeah, yeah. I mean, your beard's way better, I'm just saying. You could go a little more on top though and you know, you could go for him next year as Purim. He didn't believe in soap. Nothing unclean came from him. Yeah, so, you know, we all, I don't want to get too much, too much about these individuals. Like, if you do some history research, some really weird dudes. Um, this guy, very seriously deranged man. He got mad at some religious things that happened in his life and experience he had with his dad and just hated God and Christianity. And so here's another guy that was really influential, really, in a lot of what we see in the worldview today. Um, I've not read either the Communist Manifesto or I think it's Das Kapital. Um, I've not read either of the books, but just some of the ideology and the thinking that comes behind this is a lot of what we look at today in the wokeism and the progressivism. And um, finally, this other guy, Nietzsche, he took a lot of these kind of ideas as well. And so all these guys kind of built on top of each other's thoughts and views of the world. And all these things were really just attacks against God. And really a lot of things, I think last week, um, Evan talked a little bit about some of the idols, and I, didn't, I haven't watched any of that information yet, but just the idols that are out there and the things that we worship. And a lot of this evil philosophy comes from some of these guys. So this guy, Nietzsche, the basic thing that he was kind of known for is this idea that, like, well, people are inherently good, right? And so, you know, even though we come from pond scum, somehow we've evolved into being these good things because he came from this ideology. And again, if you look at like Marxism, like, well, people can just manage themselves. They'll come up with all these great, you know, societal truths and morality and everything will just be like this. Oh, great. 
you know, John Lennon's idea, I can only imagine of what this world would be like. You know, they don't talk about any of the chaos and craziness of the evil, which, of course, we know that the Bible talks about some of this stuff. Um, and we'll get into that in a little bit. So, but this culture has kind of been impacted here in this country. And so just a very few brief things, I think that were pretty big impacts in American history. So 1962, you've got the Supreme Court ruled school sponsored prayer in public schools. It's a violation of the establishment clause, which sometime we'll have Deb talk to us all about the establishment clause in the first amendment, but that's a whole nother lesson that we won't get into necessarily tonight. But you know, a huge misunderstanding of the Constitution. And really what we saw also is a, kind of a, a apathetic church state that started to happen and creep into the society. And at that time, people didn't really stand up and fight against this. They just thought, ah, whatever. It's like one little grain off the scale. So it's not really hurting that, that too much. Um, a year later, they come up with this, um, the, the, this you can't read the Bible in, in school anymore. So a lot of things that had gone through American history as being pretty influential things in our culture, um, you start seeing this stuff creep in. You know, going back to the philosophy of some of these other guys that started getting into a real humanistic and existential kind of worldview, we start seeing just um, the, the, the reason that we're here start going away is why people are here the reason that we have morality and ethics and things like the Ten Commandments is kind of going away. And so we see just a huge void of Christianity that's really started creeping in. And again, if you know some history of some of those guys, Nietzsche and, and Marx and Darwin, they were just very anti-religion and anti-church and anti-Christianity. They didn't want anything, anything to do with Jesus. So it's interesting to see just how devil and has used some of this stuff for spiritual warfare. And so that kind of segues into like some of these slides that again, can't guarantee the accuracy of them, but um, they're hopefully doing us a good job of just giving us a, a illustration of kind of the, what's going on in, in the country and, and really in the world. And we've seen an acceleration of this stuff going on. So some of these stats are a little bit older. A lot of the stuff that I was finding was, you know, a couple years old, but any of these statistics I'm showing you, again, go research them and they're just alarming. So this is talking about mental illness and you know anxiety you know and these categories are so broad i think a lot of it's because pharmaceutical companies want to i think group people together and and i think you know it's like you watch a commercial on tv about restless leg syndrome and it's like oh man yeah they do have restless leg syndrome you know i need to go buy some drugs for this now from the pharmaceutical company and so i think some of this is puffed up from that but a lot of this this is like legit things because we've got this ideology of a worldview without God and without Christianity and with no reason that we're here other than, you know, we're just palm scum that just poof magically appeared and we've got no reason for our existence. And so naturally what we're seeing from some of these worldviews is a lot of anxiety and depression and post-traumatic stress disorder and all kinds of other things that get lumped under these categories. Um, some of the things that I thought was kind of interesting, again, um, I'm not sure how the Office for National Statistics is doing coronavirus and depression in adults in Great Britain, but wherever this thing comes from, I think it goes to talk about a pretty consistent statistic. You know, one in six people are experiencing some form of depression. You know, people are just there, the loneliness, the depression, the anxiety, it's kind of a common theme that's out there. And, and I'm not trying to say all this to be, you know, Debbie Downer. Um, I promise I'm getting to something. We'll get to it. Are they, are they blaming depression on coronavirus? Is that what they're trying to do? They're blaming coronavirus on depression. If people weren't depressed, we wouldn't get the... No, I don't know what it... Yeah. I, I think it was just maybe trying to show like that the increase in some of this of what's been going on. And again, it was really hard to find slides and statistics. 
that are showing the increase in a lot of these things. And, and I can't remember all the numbers. I looked at so much stuff the last couple of weeks, but it's, it's alarming really to see the increase. Um, the next slide we'll look at like suicide. Some of this is kind of interesting. Like, I don't mean to make light of it, but 12.3 million people seriously thought about suicide. Three and a half million of them made a plan for it. 1.7 million in attempted suicide, but only 48,000 people died. So it's kind of funny. I'm not sure what they're trying to do to attempt suicide, but only 48,000 of them of the 1.7 million that attempted it were successful. It's kind of an odd statistic to throw up there, I think. Sorry, I'm really not trying to laugh. The point is, is that there's a lot of people that are out there that have no idea of God, no idea of why we're here. And so to end their life is not that big of an issue. Um, and it's becoming more and more common. Probably a lot of us have been impacted by somebody that we've either known or a family member that's taken their life. So suicide's a serious issue, depression, anxiety, all these things. I mean, they're legit, legitimate issues. So I don't mean to make light of any of this stuff. Um, I thought this next slide was kind of interesting. It was talking about the angriest countries. And uh, I'm not sure who goes around and asks people like <laughs> in their 20s, like, were you angry yesterday? And if they said yes, then you fall in this category. So apparently don't go to Lebanon, Turkey, Armenia, and drive like we do in America, because you might get shot. So people are very angry. Interestingly enough, I don't know how much Christian influence is in any of these countries either. That's just a side note, but I thought that was kind of a strange thing. So I'm not sure where we fall. Uh, I didn't go down too much on that poll, but um, some of the stats in America, violent crime, and again, these are a couple year old statistics. They've gone up tremendously. Kevin can probably talk a little bit more about some of this stuff. If you get, you know, I don't watch the news, but you can't turn it on for two minutes without seeing something blowing up or somebody driving through traffic or just something crazy going on like violent crime. Nothing new. It's on the rise. Um, this was kind of interesting to me. The top three crimes in the U.S. DWI, DUI, multiple DUI. So apparently like 30 days isn't long enough of a time for somebody to not get another DUI after they've gotten one. And drug crimes, cocaine charges, drugs near school. We all know what's going on with fentanyl and the craziness that's happening nowadays. Um, the, the drug world is just such a, uh, an interesting thing in and of itself about how many people out there are using drugs and it's really just a false idol. You know, it's this lie that there's something out there that's gonna give you what only God has promised to give you. And so I think same thing with alcohol. People are a lot of times using alcohol as a crutch. They're drowning their sorrows, their anxiety, depression. They don't know where are we going for these answers and society and the world's told them like, you know, just I guess evolve a little more or do a little bit better in school or maybe change your environments. And But maybe if you haven't had those things, then it sucks for you and you're just in this state of misery perpetually. And so you might as well get drunk and stoned and have sex and whatever else, you know, that we see. The same thing that the Bible talks about, you know, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, you know, all these things which are the top three crimes in the U.S. So I thought that was kind of interesting. I see some yawn, so we'll, we'll move on. But the religious affiliation, you know, um, again, really hard to find a lot of stats. I'm not sure how, um, you know, I'm not sure how accurate ABC News is and is getting Christian pulled. But the idea, again, is that Protestant church is shrinking. People are less and less likely to go to church, want to affiliate with the church. There's so many different reasons, which, again, that's another series. Maybe we'll talk about that some other time. But um, a couple of reasons why this is amongst young adults that are leaving the church and some just statistics. And, again, just uh, all this stuff to make a point that um, the world is 
getting farther and farther and farther away from Christianity, especially in this country. Bless you. And so I think it reminds me of these couple verses that, you know, Isaiah reminds us that we're all, we have all become like the one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Um, that picture there, sometimes the Bible says like these statements and they don't seem like a whole lot in words, but I'm a visual person. And when it talks about these, the, some of the translations are a little bit different. Um, but this is just a, um, you know, it's just reminding us of our sinfulness and our ugliness and how God views that in relationship to who, who we are. And obviously Romans reminds us of this, you know, we've all sinned and we've all fallen short of God's glory. Um, so as I'm getting cynical and I'm thinking about all this stuff and I'm getting angry and my righteous anger, right? Sometimes like I'm justified to be mad at stupid because there's so much of it everywhere. Like, and, and some of it, rightfully so, like we should be upset. Like there should be things that bother us. When I hear statistics on like sex trafficking, like it makes me angry. Um, when I hear about what the things that people do in the foster care system or these innocent children, like it makes me angry. So sometimes we should have some of this righteous anger, but God kept kind of bringing up this scripture to me in first Corinthians. And, uh, this is just the first half of what I want to read of it. But, you know, do you not know that the wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? And I start, I guess, back up a little bit, you know, sometimes it's real easy again, my cynicism to then want God's judgment or his condemnation to be poured out on the wrongdoers and the, un, and the unjust and the unrighteous. And so that's why I think it reminded me of this scripture. But um, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have had sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And sometimes like, good, they don't deserve it. And then Paul goes on to write this. And that is what some of you were. And it just really makes me stop and take some inventory in my life again. Instead of being judgmental and haughty and um, wanting damnation and judgment poured out on all the unrighteous, I've got to be reminded that this is exact state where I was and probably a lot worse than a lot of those things that Paul just listed there. And I think when we all take inventory of our life and we compare our holiness and our righteousness to that of God's, it reminds us of that verse in Isaiah, our best deeds are nothing but filthy rags. So all that's a lot of bad news. Um, and I just like this next word because it just seems kind of like fun to say. And so who knows how to pronounce this? Anyone? I'm not really 100% sure, but I've heard people say euangelion. Euangelion, I don't know, it's just kind of a cool word. But it's the Greek word for the good news. So we see this through scripture where, where it's talked about go and preach the good news. It's this euangelion. So it's just kind of a fun word to say. Um, I don't know that translation up there in the Greek. I don't even know what any of that stuff means. So if any of you can read Greek, there you go. Hopefully that's what it actually says. But anyways, it's just this idea that there's good news out there. And so I want to share a couple of things that in Christ's day, um, the Jews were looking at to see who the Messiah was. The very skeptical people. I love it. I'm very skeptical and cynical. I'm not trusting anybody, right? And so I kind of relate to some of these guys. And so this is where I'll try not to rabbit trail too much. And sometime, next time, if Brian ever gives me an opportunity to share, um, we'll, we'll edit this part out of the recording. But if he ever gives me an opportunity to share, I'd love to talk about some of this because there's so many fascinating things. And I don't even fully understand all of it. And I really started getting sucked down this rabbit trail. So I'm really gonna try to keep us on uh, to a, a good time here and make a point 
and kind of close after all this negative bad news that I just shared with you and all these statistics of just what's going on. But there's some really cool stuff that happens as you're going through the Gospels and you're reading. Um, so the Jews had a lot of this belief systems of the Messiah. And so we see these three miracles, the healing of the leper, the casting out of a dumb demon, and not, I mean, all demons are dumb, right? <laughs> but Bob, thanks for laughing. But this is, you know, the mute, the mute demon. And, uh, and I'll get into why some of these are a little bit like specific. And then the healing of the man born blind. So some of these little things are kind of interesting. And so these, the Jews had like, we'll get into a lot of this stuff. They had a lot of things that they would do for casting out demons or for doing healings. But there were certain ones that only the Messiah was going to be able to do. And so as we see through scripture, like how this all comes full circle, it's kind of interesting. Um, so this first one, the healing of the leper. So these are the verses, and we're not going to necessarily get into like reading the story of it. And most of you guys are probably familiar with like the stories of Jesus healing the leper, but it was important because the, um, and I, some of this I didn't realize until I was studying this, but there had never been a Jewish person healed of leprosy since the law had been given. Um, so Miriam, she got leprosy, she was healed of it, but the law hadn't been completely given. Um, Naaman, he's healed of leprosy, but he's a, he's a Gentile, a Syrian Syrian soldier. And so no Jew had ever been healed of leprosy. But if you go back to the law, there's pretty detailed instructions in there of what the priest was to do when someone came to them and they were healed of leprosy. So Jesus is going out, he's doing his ministry and he goes out there and there's this leper that comes to him. And it's interesting that when you get into the gospel of Luke, the detail that it talks about, about this leprosy, basically this guy was in the stages, he was about to die. He, leprosy had had taken over his body so bad that it was kind of the last stages is what Luke says. And so he goes in, um, he, he meets Jesus, Jesus touches him, which is a huge thing. You weren't allowed to touch something that was unclean in, in, in the Jewish law. And so anyways, he goes back to the priesthood and he goes to whoever it would be. I'm assuming the Sanhedrin at the time, correct me if I'm wrong, but he's going in and, and he shows them this process that they have to go through before the priest to show that he's clean. And so what that triggered was it triggered this kind of investigation that the Jews then started to go and do. And so when you read through scripture and you start seeing all these places where it's like, well, there was a group of Sadducees or Pharisees and they were listening and they thought to themselves something or, you know, they were, they were kind of listening to what Jesus has said or they thought something in their, in their mind or their heart. Well, the first stage of this investigation that the Jews would do when they were make, somebody was making a claim to be a Messiah was that they would start listening and observing what this person was doing. So all those times through scripture where you're reading it, this is why. When Jesus does this miracle and he goes in front, now they've these priests have started doing this investigation. Um, we won't get into the law part of it, but when you get into the Old Testament and you start reading the Levitical law, some of that processes of offering and, and investigation, it takes like a week or a week and a half for them to go through and show them. And they have to start investigating like why, you know, how the person get leprosy? Did they actually have it? Were they actually healed? All this other stuff that has to go on. And so that's kind of what starts this. So again, not getting into all the details, but really interesting stuff. And so as this investigation's happening, the, um, this, there's the, these next couple of miracles are things that kind of accelerate the investigation that the Jews are doing of Jesus's life. So the second one, the casting out of the dumb demon. Um, it's a couple of different places in scripture where it's recorded there. Um, and so some of this, the, the thing that made this kind of a messianic miracle was there was a lot of demons that had been cast out. 
And so if you think back, there's like a demon that Jesus talks to and he asks him what his name is. The demon says, you know, we are legion. Um, so that was kind of the method that the Jews understood. When you cast out a demon, you have to kind of get a rapport built with it, so to speak. So they would actually have to talk to it, get it to communicate. They would then learn its name. And that's how they would cast the demon out was what the Jewish uh, leaders would do. Well, they believed that when there was a dumb demon that they can't speak, then only the Messiah will be able to cast this demon out. So that's what kind of makes it one of these messianic miracles. Um, one of the other things, again, this is so much stuff that I don't have time to get into or don't fully quite understand all the way myself even, but when you started seeing this disbelief when in this story, if you go back and you read in the Gospels in Matthew, um, he's talking about them coming out and they accuse him then of being Beelzebub. And which is the Lord of the Flies, which I just thought that was kind of funny. I didn't never know that meant Lord of the Flies, but it does. And so if you call someone Beelzebub, you're calling them Lord of the Flies. It's funny. Baal. B-A-A-L. Beelzebub. Yeah. It, it's part of the, the group of Baals. One of the, which I don't know what the flies were the gods of, but that was what one of the plagues was, was flies in Egypt, which was after one of the, one of the gods. So apparently that's what they're calling. So... They're witnessing all these messianic miracles. The guy's healed of leprosy, this dumb demon's cast out, you know, all these things that only the Messiah would have been able to do. That's what these Jewish leaders are all teaching. So it's kind of ironic. They're all teaching that this is what the Messiah is gonna do. He says, I am the Messiah, the one you've been looking for. And all the people are like, ah, whatever, you're just Beelzebub, you know, come on. Like they're not believing him. I just think it's ironic. At this stage of, the, of, of history though, um, things change. So. The gospel, like all the miracles that Jesus was performing before this, he was just going out to the masses and he was doing teachings and people were understanding him. Um, you think back to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives this great message, the people understand, they go away understanding all these great things. After this point in time, there's kind of a rejection where the Jewish leaders, these people who are supposed to be in charge of the nation of Israel, they're examining these messianic claims and they're basically denying that Jesus is, is, Jesus is the Messiah. That was hard to say. And so because they're not acknowledging that, they're basically calling him uh, this prince of demons, Beelzebub, they're denying it. And after this rejection, if you start looking back through scripture, after this, Jesus is only instructing people in parables. He's not teaching anybody just an open, open teaching anymore. And so you think about all those times where the disciples are questioning him afterwards. So after this, the disciples have to go and ask him like, what do you mean? What are you talking about? Like, we don't understand. And he was talking secretly and in private and in parables to everybody else because the Jews had rejected this. Um, again, we won't get into this too much. So I hate to even bring it up. I, I really question how to articulate this best. Um, but we've, we look right after these verses and um, both in Matthew and in Mark, where they call him um, the Lord of the Flies, then he says there's only one type of unforgivable sin, and that's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And so basically as a nation, he's, J Jesus is proclaiming um, kind of an unforgivable sin to the nation because they've rejected him as the Messiah. And so I thought that was kind of an interesting thing. Again, I don't have time to get into the details of all of it, but it kind of makes sense as you start reading through some of the scripture and some of the gospels and you see some of these stories and uh, kind of the next couple of slides I got coming after this. So anyways, they've gone through this investigation. They've started questioning Jesus. They've called him basic. They're not agreeing that he's the Messiah. Um, a lot of things starts happening really interesting. If you start reading in John, um, 
and we'll get into a little bit of this, but a lot of interesting things kind of start progressing from John chapter six, where Jesus talks about being the bread of life. Um, a lot of his followers start leaving him. Um, a lot of this stuff is tied in, but there's this guy who's this who's born blind. Um, and from what I was reading, this time where he heals him in John chapter nine, um, the the Jews were having the they were doing the feast of tabernacles. And so a lot of them would have had this ritual that was around the pool of Siloam. And so this man comes in. Um, again, the Jews have already rejected Jesus as, as the Messiah. And so he comes in and he meets this guy who's blind. And if you remember the story, and we won't read it all, but um, he basically makes some mud. He wipes on the guy's eyes. He tells the guy to go clean in the pool of Shalom. And it was interesting because during this exact period of time when this festival is happening, you would have had tons of the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, Sadducees, the whole group of them that would have been observing this ritual during the Feast of Tabernacles. So they're at the Pool of Shalom is where this has taken place. So Jesus basically sends him in again to kind of prove to them, I'm the Messiah. Like one of the other messianic things was that if somebody was born blind, and so you think back to scripture where the disciples are asking him like, whose sin is this? Is this his parents' sin or is it his sin? And Jesus corrects me, says it's neither. It's so God can be glorified. So that's, it's a unique thing in that, that it's not kind of the same miracle um, or the same type of healing, I should say, rather. Um, there's another time in scripture where Jesus heals somebody and uh, the Sadducees and Pharisees, of course, they're like trying Jesus and they bring this guy to him who's the disciples couldn't cast the demon out. And he's like, this is a unique kind of demon. Like it can't be cast out like any other demon. Same kind of philosophy as what the Pharisees had, like only certain types of demons can be cast out. Somebody who was born blind under like the Jewish ideology or, or thought process was that they did something sinful. Um, kind of interesting, kind of going back to like what Nietzsche thought, you know, that people are inherently good, right? Um, the Jews were actually teaching people like you, um, if you're a baby and you're in your mother's womb and, you know, say you get pissed at your mom for something and you kick her in the womb like you've sinned in the womb. So if your parents didn't sin that caused you to have a birth defect, it must have been because you sinned in the womb, which, oh, crazy theology, but that's what they believed. So I don't know how they come up with this stuff. Maybe they interviewed these kids after they come out of the womb and they just find out what they did in there at some point. I'm not really sure, but it's kind of interesting. So that's kind of what they believe. So when this guy who's born blind is healed, that's kind of where they're starting to, again, get pissed at Jesus. And they're like, who has the authority to heal like or to forgive sins and so again tons of different scriptures where the jews are questioning him and they're questioning whether he has the authority to do all these things and all that to be showing that jesus is who he says he is um kind of ironically in this last little uh messianic miracle was um lazarus being raised from the dead and we all kind of know the story of lazarus um he dies um the interesting part and probably most of you guys already know this but um he's in the grave and he's got this time of four days that he waits. And so this four days was kind of a, like a wake or a waiting period that the Jews had because they had some different understandings and I'll probably mess this up. So again, just research anything that I'm telling you, but apparently the spirit would like hover over the body the Jews believed for about four days before it actually left and went to Abraham's bosom. And uh, so that's why there was this idea that if a body was raised in less than four days, then it wasn't necessarily a miracle and that only the Messiah would be able to raise um, a body from the dead. And so, of course, we hear a lot of famous scriptures. There's Mary and Martha. They come in, they're confronting him, you know, and they're asking him why he didn't come sooner. And I mean, we know from other miracles that Jesus did, he could have easily just spoke to a healing and Lazarus would have been healed. Um, but again, he's doing this to make to make a point. 
And um, it, it's also interesting, too, that if you're reading the Gospels, um, there's this point where the Pharisees, they are seeking to kill Lazarus as well because of this miracle. So we know it's something more than just uh, a, a random thing. Like it was a significant issue, which is why the Jews were kind of after him to kind of destroy some of the works that he was doing or, I guess, snuff out the witnesses. So anyways, kind of an interesting thing. Um, so going back to, there's this little thing that talks about the sign of Jonah. So he's telling him like, the only other sign you're going to get is going to be the sign of Jonah. And that's the only sign when the Jews are coming out and asking him for it. Um, again, like because they had rejected him as their savior, they were, he was, he was done trying to work with them. Essentially, they'd closed the door on him, which was kind of interesting. So so all these messianic miracles are happening, all this kind of crazy things. Again, I'm sorry that if that doesn't make any sense, there's so much cool information and uh, love to talk about it sometime and share a little bit more with it. But that's kind of all we're going to get into tonight. So this little scripture, I thought, just kind of confirmed a lot of this stuff that um, Matthew 11, John the Baptist was imprisoned and he's asking if the Messiah has come. So he sends his disciples to ask Jesus if he's really coming or if he is the coming one. And Jesus says, go and tell John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who's not offended by me. And I just think it's an interesting, uh, again, here's these kind of messianic miracles. And Jesus is reminding John when he's questioning in his doubt, hey, all these things are happening. Like, I am who I say I am. Like, you don't have to be looking for anybody else. I'm the one. And so that kind of, I guess, puts the doubt that John the Baptist had uh, to rest. So I thought it was kind of an interesting, interesting thing. And so the next couple of slides and the next little bit of stuff I want to talk about is, so we see all this stuff that's going on in the world, all the craziness and how easy it is. Again, I'm preaching a lot of this to myself to just kind of shut myself off you know, get around my holy huddle, come hang out with you guys, you know, come get to around the people that I want to be around and just kind of write everybody else off and not really engage with anybody else. Um, but we see this kind of practice that Jesus really did. And that's the next little bit I want to talk about um, of what of what Christ did. And um, this, this commandment that we see happen, you know, we hear throughout scripture. And so there's several slides I'm going to go through fairly quickly on a lot of this stuff. But um, obviously this, you know, rich wrong ruler comes up, asks Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And he's answered him. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second one is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Pretty common scripture. We've all heard this stuff before. Um, it's, again, not anything that's like a super deep revelation, but it's just a great reminder that we're to love our neighbors as ourselves. And it's real easy, I think, sometimes to go out there and well, my wife reminds me of this, like, you know, it's okay for you to say that you're loving me, but like, if you're just loving me the way you want me to love you, like, that's different than loving me the way I want to be loved. And so all that to be said, like, Christ has given us, I think, an example in scripture of how we're to love people. And we see this at this last supper, Jesus comes in, and he does something kind of abnormal. Um, he sits down and he starts washing the disciples feet. And he tells him in John 13, 14, and since I, the Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. And so as we're thinking about how do we love people, I think Jesus has given us this great example. And it's this great example of service. Um, I was recently watching a video series 
And it was really interestingly done, but a lot of it was about just these individuals who had come to know a neighbor or a friend or somebody that they had befriended that had come to know Jesus as their savior. And it happened through like this long relationship where these people had invested time in somebody they were a coworker with or a neighbor with. And it was just kind of an interesting thing. And it reminded me of just a lot of this. And the whole theme was like that a lot of these people got connected through some type of opportunity to serve. And so we'll get into that a little bit more too later, but you know, God has gifted each and every one of us with some, some gifting, whatever that gifting is, whether it's working with kids, whether it's teaching, whether it's, I don't know, driving a bus, whatever it is, God's given us something that we can do. And he's given us hopefully a ministry. Uh, if you got kids, if you got a wife, like you have a ministry, you know, obviously loving our neighbor as ourselves, like that can be anybody that we come in contact with not necessarily our literal next door neighbor, although it could be, it's people that we're doing life with every day. People we work with, people we see when we're doing our kids' sport activities, whatever it is. And so that's kind of this idea. And how are we finding ways to serve those people? If Christ has given us, the, given us this example of humility and service, like what are we doing to go and serve other people? When are we taking opportunities to go and wash other people's feet? Um, and it's a really humbling thing. I've not um, it's just something really deep to think about that Christ, who was Lord, went to the most really lowly job that somebody would do when they enter their house, and that was to wash in someone's feet. Um, so I think it's just kind of an interesting thing. Um, John 13, 34, a new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And so we see this kind of continual theme move down over the next few pages of John um, if you love me, keep my commands. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. So we're kind of getting a, a theme here. I think he picked some of this up from Leviticus. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And I think it's just an interesting thing that we see. And again, there's lots of scriptures that go on that talk about this that we see throughout all of reading the Bible. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another for whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. So this is again, a good reminder in Romans. I'm kind of running through some of these quick because I don't want to get too long-winded on this tonight. Um, Galatians 5.14, for the entire law is fulfilled in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Um, good question I always like to ask. What's the definition of a word? There's so many different definitions in our culture for what love is. There's some different definitions in our churches for what love is. Some of them are kind of toxic things, I think. Um, to tolerate anything they do. Right, yeah. Yeah. What's like, uh, yeah, I was going to go into some random joking thing, but it, it, yeah, it wouldn't have worked really well. I was thinking like Jeff Foxworthy's he's like, you know you're a redneck if. You know, you know you love like the world if. And all these stupid things, you know, a little heart emojis and things like that that go around on some of the stuff. Regardless of whatever that, we all can think of something that's a wrong thinking. And I think a lot of that stuff to me is summed up. Vody Bauckham has this, you know, he talks about how men try to go out there and identify things in the world. He says, men want to look at the world and think, how well am I doing in the bedroom? How well am I doing on the ball field? And how well am I doing in my billfold? And I think that theme goes through scripture and obviously I'm a dude, so that stuff resonates with me. I don't know if you ladies have come up with some Vody Bauckham acronym or whatever that you would use, but it's again, going back to this idea, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. You know, those things are the definitions that we, that we go after when we want to think. So we think of love as being some feeling, 
Oh, not to pick on you guys, but oh, we love each other. Not that you do. Sorry, I had to have my embarrassing moment. But th this idea of like, oh, well, we love little Smoochie, our doggy, you know, or oh, I love the Denver Broncos. You know, we have such these weird, <laughs> thank you guys for laughing. We have such these weird definitions of what love is. And, and really, again, we see what love is in scripture. It's a commitment, you know, um, it's a choice that we make. You know, any of us that are married, like, you don't fall in and out of love. Like you choose to love your spouse, right? Uh, hopefully, um, you know, it's this commitment that we're making. Like I'm committed to this person that I've said I'm gonna spend the rest of my life with. You know, when our kids do something, you know, honor, we don't just disown them. Well, sometimes, sorry, Cam, we let you back in, but you know. Um, but you know, we, we, we love them, but there's that commitment to them. We're not just gonna give up on them the first time they do something foolish with us. Um, so, you know, we can look at all these worldly definitions of love. We know that they're wrong. Um, a couple of these next slides, just kind of what godly definitions I think of love are. Um, First John, what a great book. It goes through so much things of just what love is. Um, but it's just a good reminder. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, or the desire of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is of the world. And the world's passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. You know, Brian kind of touched on this a few weeks ago, and I think it's something that, you know, I know I struggle with, you know, um, what's Dave Ramsey always say? Like, hello, my name's Dave, and I love stuff, you know? Well, I can totally stand up and identify with that. Like, I, I like things. I like going out and buying the next greatest cool hunting rifle or, you know, pickup truck or whatever else it is you want to throw in the category of things that, you know, I don't know what it is, shopping for a new pair of Toms. I don't know. They must make Toms in a new color every year just so that my wife can buy another pair of Toms, I think. So, but whatever it is, you know, that's those things of the world and they're not bad inherently. <laughs> well, you got to have one for every day of the week and every color of the calendar, I guess. I don't know. All right, so we've all got those things that we love, but, you know, again, the, the definition, the biblical definition, always got to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You know, what love is? It's patient. It's kind. It's not envious. It's not boastful. It's not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking or easily angered. It keeps no record of wrong. It does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. And it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. I think these are just great characteristics. You know, I know some years ago, my wife and I were having some struggles in our relationship because I'm a terrible communicator and amongst other things. But this was a, a verse that kind of got something worn out in my Bible a lot because I went over it and I, and, and I had to ask myself, you know, am I being patient? You know, am I being kind? Am I not envious of other things? And, and going down this list, and it, it doesn't take me very long to go down here where I can quickly see something that I'm not doing really well. And so if God's calling me to love my neighbors, am I being patient with them? Am I being kind with them? You know, am I being patient and kind with my wife? Um, you know, not necessarily like a next door neighbor, but like hang out in the same bedroom neighbor. Um, it's still a neighbor. Like there's still people that we need to be like loving and showing honor to. It's also a witness to my kids. Like how am I witnessing to my kids? Um, am, am I being a good husband? Am I being a, a good father? You know, am I doing those things that are being a good witness to them as well? Um, tons of other scriptures. We're not going to get into all of them, um, but I'll leave this up here for you studious note takers if you want to snap a note or a photo of it. But, 
you know, we all know of a lot of these things, you know, where Christ commands, lay down your life for one another. The greatest commandment that, that Jesus thought of is given of oneself as the best example of love. You know, again, loving one another, being kind to one another. Um, sometimes it really irks me, these be kind bumper stickers. I don't know why they just really bother me. Be, I think it's because it came from the whole like pandemic and it's like, put your mask on, be kind to others. I'm not talking about that kind of kindness, like living in other people's false delusions, but the kindness of, sorry, I just had to get my cynical pun in there. The kindness of just um, put, you know, again, as some of these other ones say, putting other people above you, putting other people's needs ahead of yours. And again, it's, it's really easy to say these things. It's a lot harder for me to put these things in practice. Um, so I can sit up here and speak like I'm doing really good at these things, but I'm not always that good with these things, especially this one, hospitality without grumbling. Oh man, this is really a hard one for me. Um, my wife used to get mad at me. We'd go on like a date and we'd go to a restaurant somewhere and I would just pick apart and be super judgmental and critical of like, how the service was because I was worked in the service industry for a while. And so I had an expectation of what quality service should be like. I still go to McDonald's and I'm like, I'm not saying anything until the guy here asks me like how I'm doing and asks me if I can take my order. And I just get bugged by bad, bad service. And so it's really hard sometimes to do something for other people when you're grumbling the entire time. Like I remember we did a paint-a-thong thing one time, which is like you adopt a, a family as a church, you go to their house, you clean it up and you do a day of service. I'm like, all right, great thing. Like here, we'll go do our Christian duty and we'll go help out at somebody's house. And I'm going around, I'm like, oh man, how could you live like this? This is disgusting. Like why would anybody do that? You know, I wasn't, I wasn't like doing any of this without grumbling or complaining. And so I think some of that stuff is just, it's convicting to me, I guess. So I don't know if that's something you guys struggle with, but Aaron, my dirty laundry here. So sorry, you're stuck with it. Um, forgiven others, you know, being reconciled. Um, Logan talked about communion last week. I don't know where I went, but um, you know, in this idea of just this, this reconciliation, I think, um, you know, so much of that stuff, are we examining ourselves? Are we looking into our lives? Are we looking into the offenses that we've had towards somebody else or a grudge that we have towards somebody else? Um, again, Philippians this is a great one. Value others above yourselves. Treat others as you want to be treated. Um, I think that was my mom's favorite one when we were kids, you know, and I'm like, well, what if they treat you bad? You know, it never worked that way. It's like, treat others as you want to be treated. I'm like, I want them to kick me in the shin. <laughs> Sorry. Um, bear one another's burdens. I think this is one of the things I love about this group. Um, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about some prayer needs that we have, you know, I know a lot of you guys have relationships right here. You talk afterwards or beforehand and you check in with each other's life, you know, um, seen a couple of prayer requests come, come across the men's group. It's just really neat to see when we bear each other's burdens, when we're doing community together and we're praying together. I and mean, just, what a better way to show love towards people than to just have compassion with them and do a little walk in life with them, find out what's going on in their life. Like sometimes that's the best thing that we can do for somebody, especially if it's somebody we don't maybe have a super deep relationship with. But a lot of times you can just ask people, you know, hey, how can I pray for you? You know, what do you got going on in your life? You know, what's eating at you? What's going well? Like, uh, especially young kids, you know, the going back to some of those slides on the anxiety and depression and suicide, loneliness, some of the stuff, sometimes people just kind of want to know that they're thought about. And so it's super easy sometimes in a grocery store to just be polite to somebody. And again, I'm, I'm preaching to myself here, you know, hanging out at the park. It's really easy to just say something nice, even if it's just some low level, you know, how's the weather conversation. Uh, you never know what God's going to do with it and where he's going to lead it and never know how he's going to use you being positive in somebody's life or bearing their burden to, to lift them up. So, um, James, always such a great practical book to get into. 
um, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. Visit orphans and widows in their affliction and keep oneself unstained from the world. A lot of times we hear, especially on like the, the injured puppy dog commercials, you know, the thing about visiting orphans and, widow, and widows, you know, there's a practical part of that, obviously, that, that we should be doing. Um, we should value other people and we should want to care for other people. Um, but the other part of this, too, is keep oneself unstained from the world. I don't think we hear that a lot on like the injured puppy dog commercial messages. You know, we are called to live a righteous and a standard life. Um, in doing those things, we shouldn't look just like any other humanitarian group that's going and doing stuff. Like it's great to have programs and it's great to throw a bunch of money at some of these things. But if you're not sharing the gospel with people and you're not sharing the love of Christ, if we're not being honest with them about the bad news, we can't share with them the good news. And so I think this is an important thing too to remember. Again, preaching the choir a little bit here, so... Um, several verses on just some of this practicality things. Isaiah 58, you know, is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe him and do not turn away from your own flesh and blood? Um, I think that's a, some of that too, our own flesh and blood. Um, I think James talks about that, you know, like take care of your own household or you're worse than a non-believer. Like some of these things, like uh, it's sad to me that a lot of folks in assisted living homes just get like put in there by their kids and never visited or thought about or seen. Uh, if you ever want to go serve somewhere, go to a nursing home. And man, you could spend hours and hours and hours in a nursing home and people would just light up and love to tell you just hello. And uh, it's just a, a great, crazy thing to do. But how many people just don't visit their own flesh and blood? Um, Isaiah, he's got a lot of good stuff to say. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless and plead the cause of the widow, the case of the widow. You know, there's a lot of need out there, obviously. Find out what what God, what has God gifted you to do and go out there and make it your passion. You know, I didn't get into these slides tonight, but like there's a time coming where things are going to get bad enough that we are probably going to have to run to the caves and hide in the hills. But I don't think that we're there yet. I think we still have time to go out there and we have time to witness. We have time to go and share. We have time to go serve. So um, use some of these scriptures, I guess, as motivation or encouragement um, to, to just be reminded of that stuff. Speak up for those who cannot for themselves, for the rights of those who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. It reminds us in Proverbs, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. You know, a lot of this stuff, again, we see those who don't have a voice to speak up for themselves or maybe that won't speak up and speak for themselves. Um, it's not always easy and it's going to get more and more difficult, you know, as we continue to see things get more and more depraved and more dark and people have less and less of a view of others being formed in the image of God, there's going to be a lot more hate and evil and persecution. Like it's not fun. It's not always easy to feel like we're bumping into somebody else's business or interjecting maybe an opinion where we maybe feel like it's awkward. I think culture's kind of shamed us into not wanting to say stuff and not wanting to be bold. Um, sometimes we have to be willing to get a little uncomfortable. You know, we have to be willing to call a spade a spade. And I, again, I know I'm preaching the choir. There's a lot of good men and women in here, but don't be afraid to be bold and to speak up because, um, you know, if any of you guys have, have witnessed, you know, courage begets courage. And when one person speaks up and stands up for something, an injustice, something that's going wrong, it, it seems to encourage other people. Um, but if not, what's a little persecution like? I don't know. Just use a sharp sword. Don't use a dull axe and you're sawing off my head. All right. Psalm 82. How long will you defend the just and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the weak and the fatherless and uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy and deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Again, just another great reminder. Um, 
Oops, wrong way, sorry. Um, he has shown you, O oh mortal, what is good? What does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Again, just a great reminder that we see these continual commands through scripture. You know, it's interesting to me as I was studying some of this stuff, you know, there's 613 Old Testament commands in the law. There's over 1,050 commands that we see in the New Testament. There's tons of stuff, but so many of them are themed around this whole idea, again, where Jesus sums up everything. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. All these things that, these actions that we're seeing are just practical ways to go out there and love our neighbor and love the Lord. Um, so obviously, great commission, great commandment, whatever you want to call it. I was really interested. One of the statistics is I was just going through things. There's like 25% or 30% of people in church that don't even know what the great commandment is, which is kind of odd to me, I thought. Um, hopefully, we're all familiar with some of this stuff where, where Jesus says, you know, go make disciples of all the nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. You know, surely I am with you till the very end of the age. You know, this again, this idea that we're to go out to the ends of the er to the ends of the earth. Um, we'll get into a little bit of that. Um, kind of lost my train of thought here on this slide. I think this was just showing that, yeah, Christ did what he said he was going to do. Just a reminder, I think, that the Messiah will suffer and rise for the dead on the third day and repentance of forgiveness. Oh, just, again, the good news um, that we can repent. It's never too late for anybody. I don't know. Again, that verse earlier, such were some of us. Like, sometimes with me, it's real easy to look at somebody and see the things that they're doing or the actions that they're uh, behaving in and think, cast eternal judgment on that person or think that they're beyond God's salvation and his grace. And so I think just again that this repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in this name to all the nations. And we're seeing this. Um, I was interested to find out that um, Wycliffe's only got like 200 more languages that they have to translate the Bible in. And they feel that they'll have that done in the next, I think, five or seven years. And the entire known speaking world will have had a Bible translation in their language. So it's kind of an interesting thing, I think, when it talks about that this is being preached out to all the nations. Um, again, in Acts, you'll receive power and the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I'm kind of running a little short on time, so I don't want to get too long into this. But um, and, and I'm not trying to pick on like the global missions movements and things like that. But I think a lot of this when we see in here, you know, go into Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria. You know, we could say go into, you know, Hastings, Adam County and Nebraska. You know, so many times I think we forget that there's plenty of opportunities right here in our own backyard. Um, you know, the old statement, like we don't have to fly over mission fields to go to mission fields go to a public high school, go to an assisted living home. Sad to say, go to a church. There's plenty of places that they, they, they're hungry for the word and they don't know what the true gospel, that euangelion, that good news. You know, there's so many just false things out there and, and even in churches that are just not being, not being taught. Um, again, in Romans, this, this just reminder for all of us, how will they then call on him who they've not believed? And how are they to believe in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Um, you know, I'm not saying you got to stand up on a soapbox outside like the next Husker game down on, you know, 9th and, and O or whatever and preach the gospel from a soapbox. But I do think there's a time again where we can go and engage with our neighbors and we can, and we can, we can preach. We can share the good news. 
um, Revelation, we've been going through this. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimonies, and they love not their lives unto death. Um, you know, are we taking up our cross daily and going out there and being willing to go out there and get uncomfortable to, to, to go and share the gospel with somebody? Last slide. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always be in prayer prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. That last part, gentleness and respect, that's the hard part for me. I think I've always got a reason for a hope that's in me, but it's the gentleness and respect that I need to work on a lot. But be, be prepared. You're going to come into some uh, slow down, I think, sometimes and make time to have those conversations with people. Um, I know it is really tough for me. I get wired down on my schedule and I got five minutes to be somewhere and, you know, I've got seven minutes to get there. And so I feel like I'm always just running behind. But when I've, I've found that when I take the time to stop and let somebody interrupt my schedule and my day and my little narrative that I got going on and I take that time, it's amazing how the Lord just works in some of these conversations. And, uh, and just trusting him in that time has been a really good thing. But, you know, just being prepared to give that answer for the hope that's in you. And, and again, being willing to go get uncomfortable, share some of these things with people. Go metaphorically wash somebody's feet, maybe literally wash their feet. I don't know. It might be a little creepy if you don't talk about it before, but... Cool. Well, we'll close in prayer. Father, we just thank you again for this time, Lord, and uh, just pray your words would be convicting to us, Lord, that we would see your commandments that you've got in Scripture to love others, Lord, and that you would equip us to go and do such. Uh, Lord, I thank you for just the times that you have been patient and uh, forgiving with me when I'm not as obedient to do these things, Lord, when I uh, get cynical or uh, when I get jaded and I don't want to engage in conversation with people, Lord, um, I just pray that you give me the words to speak, Lord. I know that uh, you remind us in Jude there's sometimes we got to speak harshly with people and sometimes we have to be gentle. And so I just pray that you give each of us discernment, direction, and guidance when we uh, engage in these conversations with others. Lord, I pray that you'll give us opportunities this week as we just share life with those that we come in contact with, uh, that we would be ambassadors for you, Lord. Uh, just again reminded of um, the last few weeks of just teaching of um, our command to go out there and to make disciples, Lord, um, our, our call to not be selfish, uh, but to humble ourselves, Lord, before you, and that uh, we would be transformed, Lord, by the renewing of our minds. I pray all this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.